Welcome to In Moderation. The show where we give you a moderate dose of info, sarcasm, and we already know we're not approved. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast In Moderation episode Rob, help me out here a little bit. I'm uh, done helping you. you. You're on your own. 16, episode 16. That's probably not right, but <laughs> we're going no, with it. That's not right. Today, it doesn't matter. We're still moving along. We have our resident TikTok allergist, Dr. Ruben, on today. Dr. Ruben, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on again. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, well, we this time you're actually a guest. Yeah. Last time yeah. you were the host. I was the host, yes, because you two were in jail because uh, uh, you impersonated <laughs> Bobby at Costco. <laughs> and I just want to point out that I got uh, our, our email got um, one of those spams from people trying to book onto the podcast for money. And the header was um, Dear Dr. Ruben, Rob, and Liam. So you are officially one of That's the hosts great. of this show. Wow. I, holy cow, folks. I'm really excited. <laughs> Being a scammer has got to be great. When people fall for it, you got to be like, really? But then you just take their money and it's awesome, right? I mean, that's got to be that's going to be fantastic. Absolutely. By the time we're on episode 50, Liam's just going to have gone over to the dark side. Well, I don't know when we'll be on episode 50, so it doesn't matter. That could be tomorrow. <laughs> At that point, he may no be selling clue. supplements, folks. Let's be real. <laughs> Well, I mean, whatever. I mean, it pays. Come on. Listen, coming some slack here. Um, But yeah, we figured we'd have Dr. Ruben back on Mm -hmm. to talk about maybe some more serious things. Because Dr. Ruben, I've heard that allergies are a thing, that some people have them. This is am, am I correct in this? You are absolutely 100% correct. And considering what y'all do in terms of, you know, the nutrition field and wellness, it really overlaps quite a bit because there are unfortunately millions of people in the United States living with a food allergy. It's estimated now to be about 32 to 33 million people, which is, you know, roughly really? one in 10 to one in 13. So that's like saying two kids in a classroom and an average classroom size are going to have food allergies right now. Does that mean like sig- to a significant degree or just like any amount? Like, I mean, I'm just kind of correct. Curious. So when we're talking about food allergy, we're all going to say on the same page here. This is potentially life-threatening situation where even the smallest amount for okay. some people could develop a severe allergic reaction, also known as anaphylaxis. That's what I'm saying. That is a severe problem. You know, when we were kids, uh, most of us didn't know anybody that had food allergies. Uh, the rates have tripled in, in, in the last 30 years. And there's wow. some theories as to why. Could you maybe give us like a couple as to like why we were thinking maybe food allergies are going up? Sure. So there's multiple potential reasons why this may be the case. So it's never one thing. So if you ever look at a comment section when people are asking about this, they'll they'll say, "Oh, right, it's, like the it's, water. it's the water. It's the chemtrails or the seed oils. <laughs> you know, it's always that or, or vaccines." No, it's it's not one thing. I'll give a few examples. So the American Academy of Pediatrics for a long time had made a recommendation for babies to have peanuts delayed introduction to like two to three years of age. And we found that over the last 10 years, there have been some really good studies comparing kids who were randomized to either getting peanut protein within the first six months of life to those who were delayed to five years of age. And there's five years. Yes. And there's an absolute risk reduction in the development of peanut allergy by about 80% 
when you do wow. early introduction. Wow. So 80%. 80% risk reduction. Gotten. Right. So, so those guidelines have changed uh, about 10 years ago or so. So we'll get more data in the next five to 10 years about where we are at with those guideline changes. Uh, but it, it seems to be that many of these highly allergenic foods, such as peanut, it's better to introduce it during the first year of life, not delay it. So the immune system, we're still learning a lot about it. It's rather malleable early on in life. So if we can challenge the immune system early on to these foods, probably less likely to develop food allergies, but mm -hmm. We haven't eliminated food allergies just from that yet, which again shows you why it's not just one issue that we're talking about. Yeah. Another issue potentially is some of the early exposures to antibiotics and acid suppressors. Okay. So if, if a baby has reflux, we mm -hmm. often will give them a medication like an antacid to reduce the reflux that the baby has. And there have been some studies showing an association between these medications and potentially developing food allergies. Doesn't mean that there's a hmm. link. It's not necessarily causative. It's a right. possibility. But again, we have to think about everything involved with what we're trying to do here. Early antibiotic use can be an, a crucial if there's any concern for sepsis in a newborn. So we're not going to say because of food allergies, we're going to stop giving antibiotics to babies when they need it. But we want to have right. judicious use to make sure that we're not overusing it, but it can still have its purpose. Antibiotic usage could potentially change the gut microbiome, the bacterial milieu, and how our immune system processes okay. the food early on in life. So that, that's another potential example. Another issue is the fact that we're seeing more and more kids developing eczema. That's this dry, itchy skin condition that has a lot of redness, a lot of irritation, often is seen on the cheeks. Right. And we see an, a strong association between those who have eczema and developing food allergy later in life, probably due to the fact that oh. those who live with eczema have a skewing of their immune response to something called TH2 inflammation, which can generate a lot of an allergy antibodies. So oftentimes we could develop later in life. I do think a small portion of it, though, is when parents bring their kids in to get potentially allergy tested, they're given a whole panel of tests by a physician with all the different foods, and it'll show up that they're allergic to 10 different foods, and they may unnecessarily avoid some of these foods. So we have to be right. careful about food allergy testing because oh, you I could would love over to talk about that a little bit. That. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk get into more into it. Yeah. yeah, the food allergy tests, I, I know they're not... Let's just say super accurate, but I don't know to the extent just kind of how, how bad it is. I mean, frankly, but I did want to quickly. Yeah. Sorry. I just want to quickly go back yeah. to the introducing it when they're younger. So I've heard it's around six months. You should try and introduce. Right. Is that so, correct? Around so six? between four to six months, it depends on uh, okay. how well the child is doing developmentally. If they're able to sit up, if they're not tonguing out too much because they have to be able to swallow solid foods. That's something that you talk right. with your pediatrician about and have them assess them developmentally and have that conversation with them about, is it appropriate to even introduce it at four uh, months old? I'm going right. to definitely talk about that with my pediatrician because Oakley's about four months now. And I'm, yeah. I, I refuse to her for her to be allergic to peanuts. <laughs> Listen, there's too uh, many peanuts. To be I my nephew. He ended up so, being one of the allergic to peanuts when uh, they tried so it. So I'm going to do everything I can so to Absolutely. try to avoid that. So a yeah. little bit of peanuts around four to six months. I'm going to talk to but, uh, yeah, so here's Here's the real trick, Liam. Raw milk. <laughs> raw milk. Raw milk. Uh, okay. 
So do we just get, do I give it to her now, or is that something that we wait till later to give the raw? You just bathe her in it. Oh, I bathe her in it. See, yeah. these are the questions. This is why I have you around. Or right. yeah, exactly. I was just going to have her drink it. Yeah. Oh I God, no! no don't drink raw milk. milk. You bathe in it. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Enemas uh-huh. and and bathing. God, exactly. Right. <laughs> so 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 to get back to the introduction issues, um, yes. if a child has a history of egg allergy or they have what we call moderate to severe uh, eczema, you definitely need to be talking with your doctor about whether or not you can safely introduce peanut because those are the kids that are at highest risk and those are what okay. the current evidence based guidelines talk about. You may need to get some testing for peanut allergy prior to introduction in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are all things that your pediatrician should be well-versed in and start talking about um, because, yes, peanut is one of the prime examples because it's one of the most common food allergens in the country. About 2% of people are allergic to peanuts now. Could you run us through, like, the top food? So I know peanuts. I know soy mm-hmm. is up there, yep. like wheat. Wheat, uh, what, cow's milk, uh, tree nuts, Fish, okay. shellfish. Um, we also have sesame. Um, Wasn't sesame just added? It was added as the ninth food. most common allergen. Okay, yeah. Okay. I food number ten. Based. Now this is crazy. What might be number ten? The okay. CDC recently reported last summer is red meat. Really? Is it because of those ticks? Is yes. it because of those ticks? Yes. So it's something called alpha gal syndrome, which I hope that your mm-hmm. audience will. Uh, start to get interested and know more about because this is affecting a lot more people than we realize. So there may be close to half a million people in the United States living with alpha-gal syndrome. What we believe is happening is, is that there's a particular tick called the Lone Star Tick or Amblyoma Americanum. It's mainly found in the East Coast, but it's gone further north. It's also in the Midwest as well. And as we have rising temperatures, these ticks are traveling further north. Uh, These ticks in their saliva, uh, they carry a sugar molecule called galactose alpha-1,3 galactose, also known as alpha-gal. And when they bite you- Sounds like an anime. It does actually. <laughs> Power does. up. Or, or, you know, like we have beta bros and alpha gal, right? You know, oh, I, I get that, I get that oh. comment. I get that comment. Forget all the, the time. We got to start making animes. <laughs> uh, so, so in the saliva of these ticks, when they bite you, they introduce the sugar molecule alpha gal into your bloodstream. Humans and certain primates do not have alpha gal, but pretty much every other mammal has the sugar molecule. So our immune system sees it as foreign and creates these allergy antibodies called IgE that are specific and can bind to alpha-gal. And what's weird about this type of syndrome is it's not like a traditional food allergy where I eat the food and even the smallest amounts, you get these kind of reproducible reactions of hives, swelling, problems, breathing, vomiting, combination of that or drop in blood pressure, which can be life-threatening. This is inconsistent. And it can be delayed up to four to six hours. So prior to knowing this existed, there were many patients who would come in and say, you know, I'd wake up at two, three in the morning and I'd be covered in hives. And I have no idea why that's happening. Or I'd wake up at two, three in the morning and I couldn't breathe. I was wheezing. My chest was tight. My face is swollen. They'd end up in the ER um, getting pumped with steroids and epinephrine, and it would be wow. called idiopathic anaphylaxis. Idiopathic meaning we, we just know. don't know the underlying we issue. Don't. Right. Uh, until a bunch of uh, researchers out on the East Coast, I believe it was at University of Virginia, were able to connect the dots because they were seeing a lot of these patients in that area where the Lone Star Tick was prevalent. There was also a colorectal cancer drug called cetuximab that 
was causing similar reactions and they found out that that sugar molecule was part of that that medication. And so they were able to characterize this fairly recently, like over the last 10, 10 20 years or so, to, to really put things together to come up with this. And, it's, and a lot of physicians still don't know about this. The majority of doctors still don't understand this condition or don't feel comfortable with it. And so it's important wow. for people to recognize this as we now estimate a lot more people probably have this. I know it, one doctor who definitely yeah. does not know anything about this. <laughs> Dr. Salad. <laughs> Dr. Salad. <laughs> oh. Um, is it permanent, you're asking? Yeah, is it permanent so far? Do we know? So we don't have a ton of data on whether it's permanent or not, but we know that some people are able to outgrow it. So I've actually are, oh, okay. have done oral food challenges for people, I suspect, in the past where I'd say, you know, their allergy antibody to alpha-gal has gone down significantly. What they would do is they would eat a steak dinner or, you know, a bunch of hamburgers in the morning and come into the clinic and sit there morning. all day. And just sit there what, all day what because because the, the reactions are are delayed and and ideally you have to do this multiple times because it's inconsistent. So people can sometimes have axial ingestion and not have a reaction, and other times they they can That's get really really sick. And it's not just food. Wow. This is an issue where there's a lot of you know pills and medications, gelatin, right? As right. an example, oh, yeah. there's okay. a whole list way larger than you'd think. You essentially have to go vegan if you have this issue. It's very, very difficult to live so with. So there's no people. like real treatments for it now or preventative anything. It's just we're still figuring it out. The best thing you can do. Don't get bit by a tick. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. You, you do not want to get bit by ticks because ticks can resensitize you to the allergy potentially. Oh. That's fascinating. I find this fascinating. It sounds like something in like a sci-fi novel series, something like that, where there's just you get bit and you can no longer eat these foods. It's it sounds made up. If you just told me if somebody if I saw it on TikTok, they're like, oh, that's fake. Like, there's no way that's real. But I, I did actually see it a while back. And I was like, that's it's it's fascinating. It's crazy. Yeah. Last summer, I made one of the longest posts I've ever made about this in the history of it. And it really does sound like, you know, a documentary sci-fi <laughs> you know, type story. And I even put like the Moonlight Sonata music in the background and made it kind of eerie because it's just, it, it is wild how they were able to come up with it. But also a lot of people who have this don't feel heard and and, and people think that they're yeah. crazy sometimes. And it's just, it's far from the truth. This yeah, is a I mean, serious I, problem. It's got to be so frustrating for the person because they're not being heard. And other people are like, that. there's just no way that can be true. That has to be like made up. So yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, there's unfortunately he, a lot of issues in, in, in the patients I treat with allergic conditions that can be rare or becoming more recognized where people are told, ah, that's in your head. Like I literally yesterday saw a patient who said, don't call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure my child is allergic to the cold. And I said, you're not crazy. There is something called cold-induced urticaria. You can get hives just from the temperature. Huh. Our immune and system- see, this is why it's, it's so frustrating when people make up allergies. That's why I, I have yeah. lots of people like fake that for whatever reason. They got that they stupid have. seed oil allergy card yeah. they print off the internet. Yeah, uh, the, the, this is a big challenge because- Yes, some people want to to use allergy as the term for potentially a lifestyle choice, and, and that's caused a lot of confusion and anger that's now put towards people who are actually having these lived experiences that are so challenging and potentially debilitating. 
People who live with food allergies are at a significantly higher risk of developing anxiety and depression and may not be able to go out with friends as much as they want to because they have such anxiety or they're bullied for, for having these issues. Right. There was a, a high school student in Texas who was on the varsity football team who uh, essentially other players were hazing him. They were they were putting like peanuts in his locker room Jeez. and all oh, sorts of peanut no. products in his stuff. He got hives from it. And uh, the kids got kind of a slap on the wrist. But now the parents have been speaking out and kids being bullied over this, even though he did nothing wrong. He was being picked really? on and he's being picked on even more. Anything, some- anything that makes you different, it <sighs> sucks. It's just like anything that makes you different from other people, they will, they, especially as teenagers, they'll just latch onto that. Yeah. And when it's something like an allergy, you know, it can be absolutely deadly. And then not even just that, but all the, 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 the psychological damage that can be done. To someone in that situation. Absolutely. The media portrays allergies as people being weak, uh, as looking like, I mean, yes, I kind of have the stereotypical look that you'd see on TV of someone with allergies. You know, I I, I do fit some of that (laughs) persona, so to speak. I'll live it. I don't care. That's fine. But but anybody could have a severe, potentially life-threatening allergy, and it affects millions of people, but doesn't mean you're weak. It just means that you have an immune system that is actually hyperactive to an extent. It has, it has these reactions that are really strong. It just, it just can cause these life-threatening situations. If you actually look at how your body goes through these, these disease states, it, it's terrible. It really is. And and so people need to be able to learn more about this so that uh, they can take it more seriously and have more empathy towards it. Where I'm at in Illinois, we actually passed a law uh, where high school students at every public school has to learn how to use an EpiPen and identify anaphylaxis now. Well, I will say, um, like, maybe in the U.S., you look like the stereotypical allergy person. (laughs) For Canadians, you look like Mr. Dress Up. And that is like... (laughs) A big compliment. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> I I find it it's 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 interesting to me because people are interested in allergies and they're and you know we're all suff- not all many people are suffering from health conditions and they want to improve their health. So that leads them to think maybe I do have an allergy, and that leads them to buying an uh, an allergy test, right? And they right. get this thing and they take a, and it turns out they're allergic to mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. everything. Everything around them, I see people like post their like results and they're like, I'm allergic to 74 things. And usually it's just always like the common stuff. You know, they're like, I'm allergic to milk. I'm allergic to this. So could you just give us a little bit on these like allergy tests and like how, you know, what's the deal with them? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I'm I'm glad you bring this up because there is a lot of... Just like in the wellness industry, this overlaps where many companies try to profit off of people who are trying to find answers. And it's not necessarily the best test, especially when there's not clinical context. So so just a little bit of background about medical testing. There are so many different tests out there. But the question is, what is the pre-test probability? Meaning, what's the likelihood that this particular person will get their question answered by having a positive test or having a negative test. If the test has a low pretest probability in that person's situation, you probably don't want to do that test. And this happens in the allergy world all the time. So I could do either a blood test or a skin test, which are both trying to measure that allergy antibody that I was talking about called IgE or immunoglobulin mm-hmm. E. That's the classic allergy antibody that causes those potentially severe life-threatening situations. And there are companies who will sell you a panel 
that you could look at 30 foods, 60 foods, 90 foods, whatever you want. You could, you could, you could make an, a laboratory assay to any of those foods. The immune system can make those antibodies and it can show up on a test, but are you actually going to be reactive? There's a difference okay. between something we call sensitization, meaning the antibody is present, and the allergy, that's the clinical syndrome, where you have symptoms after consuming it. And there's a huge oh. disconnect between the test itself and the clinical syndrome. So you need to have a good story before you get the test to improve that pre-test probability, the likelihood that it's going to tell you, yes, I'm allergic to it. A panel of testing for most people is not helpful. So when a company goes and they, they sell that big test for allergy, again, I'm only talking about this antibody. I'll get into another test in a second that's related to what you guys deal with all the time. Uh, if, if, if you have that test that's sent by a company without a doctor interpreting it, then you get a lot of garbage information and you may Lots end of up- false un, positives. Un, exactly. False positives where you're unnecessarily avoiding food that can lead to nutritional problems, you know, food aversion, especially if this is yeah. on children. It, it's a lot of problems I, when you overtest people with that one. There's another I, test that I think yeah. you're going to ask about called food sensitivity testing. Yes. Yes. That's right. kind of the overlap. So I talked about IgE antibody. The other one is called food sensitivity testing, which is measuring a different antibody called IgG. So oh. when we eat food, how does our immune system know that it's not a germ? Because we have Magic. antibodies for <laughs> antigens. Yeah, there's there's I'm assuming there's there's antigens or antibodies attached to the antigens. Hey, this is bad. We I'm, I'm pretty sure the answer to everything on this podcast is. Magic. <laughs> black magic. Black magic. And fairy so, dust. So so besides the black magic and fairy dust, one of the ways it may tolerate food is through what we call a tolerance antibody, which is called IgG4. Uh, oh. Immunoglobulin G has four subclasses, and IgG4 is one that may help to, uh, ca induce a state of tolerance. So it's like, hey, guys, uh, rest of the immune system, don't worry about this. This guy can move along and get digested. Oh, okay. That's one way, potentially. Another way is... You're eating the food and you have all these digestive enzymes that break it down enough so that the molecules aren't big enough for the immune system to see. It kind of just slides past Interesting. for, for okay. some people. And that's a big reason why sometimes you can have a positive allergy test and not necessarily get allergic reactions because you're digesting it before the immune system sees it. That's so that would make sense uh, why we why there's always the common ones why people the food allergy tests and whatnot are always like you're allergic you're allergic you have problems with these foods and it's always the common foods because those are just you know maybe those are the most it might maybe be. I, it might hmm. be um, so so with this IgG test the companies will say well if you have a positive test to coffee on on, on our food sensitivity test you should avoid it. And and if you feel better after two weeks, and you and then you eat it again, and it gets you feeling sick, then it's you're sensitive to coffee. Well, the reality is, and I see this in my practice on a regular basis, people will come in with the sensitivity test for like ninety foods, over a hundred foods, and right. it'll say things like coffee, tea, uh, vanilla, all these all these you know obscure things. And I'd say, do you eat these things on a regular basis? And almost every time they'll say, yeah, I do. And, and the issue is, is that that's the stuff that they're commonly eating. So the immune system makes the antibody. That's right. all it's doing right. to tolerate it. Okay. There's, there's no validated way to say that IgG testing actually improves people's 
symptoms or whatever sensitivity means. That term sensitivity is, a, is loosely defined. We don't have an underlying mechanism of looking at the biochemical pathways in our body to say, I eat this food, it generates this process to cause these symptoms. Unlike with food allergy, I know your B cells produce IgE antibody. There's, they sensitize mast cells. They sit on the mast cell surface. Food comes in and crosslinks with those an antibodies, releases chemicals in the mast cell called degranulation, like histamine, um, different cytokines, and those cause the symptoms I've described, hives, swelling, problems, breathing, vomiting, all that stuff. So we can describe that, and we have the tests to describe that. IgG testing or any food sensitivity tests where we pluck a hair out of your, out of your head okay. and measure that these sensitivity analyses, there's there's no scientific proof that those actually really help people. So you wouldn't recommend anyone get a food space, basically anyone, you'd say just skip the food sensitivity test. I agree. Yes, okay. absolutely. There's really no reason to do it. And I'm not the only one saying this. This is endorsed by all the major allergy societies, American College of Allergy, Asthma, Immunology, as well as the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, Immunology. These are yeah. unproven tests. I just think that goes pretty to much everybody marketing. who doesn't sell one. Right. Right. But that shows you the power of marketing because I see these things like quite a bit. And I, I hear people talking about them and everything like that. And I think that really shows you the power of marketing. And 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 yeah. again, it goes back to this. We a lot of us are dealing with an issue and just be able to say, oh, it's this food you're eating. Oh, that makes sense because I always eat it. You know, and I and they play on that, and that's really unfortunate. Right, right. I, my 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 feeling on this is is that you know you're spending all this money to give you things that don't necessarily help, and it it may appear to help some people, but that's anecdotal evidence. That's right. the strongest force in marketing on the internet. Yes. When people say, yeah, say that hey, again, say hey, that again, hey, but louder. Hey, I'm a parent. <laughs> You know, when, when somebody comes on and says, I'm a parent, I'm busy, and I don't feel well, but I did this one thing that changed my life. Oh, gosh. That's not the basis of scientific evidence, folks, unfortunately. But it's so but it's Like you so said, it's powerful. so powerful. Yeah. Like, it's it's more powerful than any meta-analysis. Exactly. I mean, I could cite, like, five of those. But a mother comes on and says, oh, we were struggling so hard, and we had we were at our wit's end, and we did this one thing. And look at them now, and you right. just see this before right. and after picture. It, it, it's more powerful than anything. Yeah. Like it, you tug on those heartstrings. Oh, yeah. One of the goodness. ones that I'm trying to really confront right now, because we're shifting our guidelines from this, from an evidence-based standpoint is eliminating food to treat eczema, which has been a very common practice to do. And so I see this where parents will go on and say, my child has eczema and we've been struggling, but you know, I got rid of dairy and in 24 hours, their eczema was completely clear. It was fixed is what yeah. I hear from time to time. And, and there's a lot of nuance that's lost in that that we're learning more about. Eliminating foods at an early age unnecessarily could potentially increase the risk of developing a potentially right. permanent food allergy. That could happen. And, and notice how I'm trying to be very careful with my right. language right. because there's no absolutes. It could, Only the it Seth may, deals in absolutes. It's almost like it's not black and white. <laughs> Join the dark side. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and you can then yeah. say yeah. this causes maximum. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, but, but we found that in various studies, yeah. when you eliminate foods to treat eczema, it doesn't significantly improve it for a population, a, a, a large population of kids as an example. And the flip side is, is that there's potentially negative consequences. So trying to focus on other ways to treat that skin condition, I think is more important. You could do a skin test and find that, yeah, they've got antibodies to these foods. And 
maybe it might help their eczema mildly. I don't know. But I'd yeah. rather not take that risk and create a problem that didn't exist yeah. before that's more likely exactly. to be permanent and potentially life-threatening. I'm not downplaying eczema. It's a terrible condition. I, I grew up with eczema myself. I didn't wear jeans for my entire childhood because it scratched my skin so badly. I'd itch all day wearing those types of fabrics and I'd be itching all the time. It was hard to focus. So I can empathize with people living with eczema. Fortunately, I mostly outgrew it when I became an adult, uh, but I remember that feeling. And so I, I empathize with that. But knowing what I know now, I wouldn't, for most people, I'm not saying everybody, but for most, I wouldn't go straight to avoiding food unless I was doing X, Y, and Z things. And I tell right. people that because I get asked, what about acne a lot? People ask me, like, what's the deal with acne and food? And I'm not an expert on it, but from the experts that I see and talk to, you know, there there may be, may be a connection between acne and things like a high sugar diet or um, they say maybe whey protein. Like, I hear that, but like, it's very, we're not sure. Like, it's, it's, it's not likely. Like, no. Yeah. So, you know, you know are you going to cut all that out of your diet for maybe like it possibly to help I, on, on the on the topic of acne quickly, like before you even cut food out of your diet, change your bedding more often. Like that is okay. one of the biggest causes of acne is like lifestyle really, changes in other yeah. ways besides diet. It can be helpful in terms of having things that are a little bit more clean, a lot of a skincare routine. The, yeah. There are so many other things. We have medications that we can use yeah. for acne. It, it, it's the same thing with eczema. It, there are so many different things we can do the skincare now. And, and there just has to be a lot more education and teaching. And that's one of the big drivers for me going on social media to try to give general educational tips for people to understand and, and debunk people who go out and say, I have a, I have a food allergy and I'm going to eat the food and we're going to see what happens. And it's like, no, don't do that. <sighs> don't. Yeah. No, yeah, especially I, with EpiPens being $800,000 or whatever they oh are. It's my crazy gosh. It's now. been, like, it's see, been what, terrible. $600 now? So they can, depending on the person, be as much as six to $700. Jeez. Most of the time with my patients, it's like two to $300. You can still. get generics for as low as $150, but that's still what? ridiculous. Uh, but then I have also some patients who are like, yeah, my insurance is great. I only pay like five bucks or it's free. That's lucky. I, I wish I had their health insurance because most yeah. insurance companies don't cover all of those costs for, for something like that, and even though it's a life-saving medication. Uh, so the expiration date is usually about a year, but they typically okay. can last longer than that, especially if you're able to keep it in the right temperature conditions. If you live in your car, yeah. you're going to ruin it faster than you think. But if you're holding on to it and you look at it and like I have a trainer with me on my desk, I always have that to show people. But uh, the real device would have uh, an indicator where you can see the medication. You can look up to the light and if it's oh. clear, not cloudy, not yellow, it probably will be helpful. We just don't know how helpful it is. It's better right. to use that than nothing. But if it's yellow well, or course. cloudy, you can't use it. Um, okay. But soon we will have devices that will be needle free. Within the next 12 months, there should be a nasal spray containing epinephrine coming out. I saw your video out. on the nasal spray. That's fascinating. Nice. That's so cool. Yeah. It should have come out already, but the FDA asked for an additional dose repeating study, and I'm not too happy about that. They should have just approved it and let the physicians like myself just counsel patients very carefully on right. what's going on with it and what we know, what we don't know. Because in order to really know how these medicines work, like EpiPen, same thing. There was no randomized placebo-controlled trial to approve EpiPens. It's it's not ethical to run those it's trials right. 
because that would be saying, hey, um, I want you to uh, eat peanut butter and go into anaphylaxis and you may or may not get the real device. So you might die doing this. That's okay. No <laughs> that would be tough to get people to sign up. No, no, it's unethical. So they do something called pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic studies or PKPD studies to look at secondary measures like blood pressure, heart rate, for example, and, and time that from when you get the medication so that we see the physiological changes outside of anaphylactic conditions. You see what I'm saying? I'm just glad that uh, you know stuff like that is a lot cheaper in Canada. Yeah, you guys have. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of times I, I hear from people outside of the U.S. who are like, "Yeah, I get this for free," or it's like it's ten bucks. And no, and here in America, we jump out of ambulances because we know we're going to get charged four thousand dollars just for a ride to the hospital. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about that, and mm-hmm. I was like, what? "I've had friends jump out what? of ambulances." Like, no, I'm not go. You won't take. I won't pay four thousand dollars for it, a ride. It, it's it's crazy how much the cost of healthcare could be. Uh, one of the representatives from Florida introduced a bill to try to cap EpiPens and other related devices at $60 oh, a twin pack. That would be federally. Right now, there's a few states like in Illinois here where they're capping it at $60, um, which is fairly reasonable because the device itself does take costs, I think, about 20, 30 bucks to make. So, okay. so that's a fairly yeah. reasonable price for, for, right. for a life-saving but medication. But $600, like, yeah, it's crazy. Is, it's gouging. It's totally yeah. gouging. That is, it, yeah. You know, so um, I'm hoping that gets passed. Uh, it's called the EpiPen Act. And so anybody who's in the United States listening to this, you know, write to your local Congress people yeah. to, to in support of what it's called literally the EpiPen Act. I don't remember the exact acronym, but I think it, it's important <laughs> for apropos. people to be aware that we're trying to help. It's not just for people living with food allergies. You can have anaphylaxis, severe life-threatening <laughs> situations to, to medications, to, to bee stings, latex. Yeah. All sorts of things. So, so this affects millions of people. It, yeah. It'd be great for them to be more affordable, just so people who maybe not have yeah. allergies can even carry one around just in case of emergency. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, that's very interesting. Oh, so before, yeah, before we, I want to make sure I get to something because I remember watching a video you did that I want to ask you about uh, about Benadryl. Because I, I, you, you talked about how there's possibly a connection between Benadryl and like dementia. If you take it, you know, consistently, this isn't like once in a while thing, but you take it consistently. I was fascinated by that. I was kind of like looking it up. I was like, wow, there's actually like a decent amount of research. And the fact that this isn't more well known is very surprising to me. Could you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so a lot of times people call me the Benadryl boogeyman because of the amount of posts I talked about it for, at one point. <laughs> I don't blame you, though, yeah. for, you know. I, yeah. So so I remember a while ago, there were several allergists who had written an editorial. It was I think it was entitled like Diphenhydramine Time to Move On or something like that. Okay. And, and so Diphenhydramine is the generic name for branded uh, Benadryl. Benadryl is one of the oldest antihistamines. It's been around, I think, since around the 40s. Uh, it's part of the class of first-generation antihistamines. There's other similar ones like chlorpheniramine, hydroxazine um, as examples. These are medications that, yes, they block the chemical histamine from attaching to its receptor, but they also have properties called anticholinergic properties. They block something called acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter that, that is uh, you know, found all over the place. And so Benadryl, when you take it, especially at higher doses, can have all sorts of side effects such as you dry out, um, you can have constipation, urinary retention, it can actually cause sexual dysfunction, uh, heart palpitations, 
seizures, coma, and yes, death. People have died from taking Benadryl overdose. There was unfortunately a teenager who passed away trying to do a a Benadryl challenge that there's been a social media challenge where people try to take it and hallucinate off of it. And and people and the FDA actually put out a warning for that. Okay. (sighs) So what you're talking about is there are some longitudinal data of similar medications, anticholinergic in nature, where they looked at several adults who would take these anticholinergic medications like Benadryl for long periods of time and then say, okay, who developed dementia later in life? Right. And there were significantly higher numbers of people developing dementia who had taken these anticholinergic medications. So we call that an association. Can we say yeah, there's so do direct- Do we have co- a mechanism of action? Like, a, do we have a, a, any any ideas it, on it how it could? It probably has to do with the anticholinergic property and how it, mm. it alters brain chemistry, most likely, but we don't fully understand this. Right. This is an association. So whenever you see on okay. the news someone saying, oh, this is linked to it, I don't right. like that word because that makes it sound like it's causing it. Yeah. This is an association where we see that some That's groups fair. of people have these conditions and they also happen to have taken this. So I bring this up in a lot of my content because it's not like we don't have a lot of safer alternatives nowadays. We right, have exactly. so many new medications. The second generation antihistamines like Zyrtec or Cetirizine, Zizol, Levocetirizine, Claritin, which is loratadine, Allegra, which is fexofenadine, these newer medications that have been around for a few decades now, since basically the 90s and early 2000s, that work basically the same. They, they are antihistamines. They work just about as quickly. They're just about as effective. They last longer than Benadryl usually, but they don't have those anticholinergic and, properties and they don't you, – you, you don't die from overdoses on them like you can with Benadryl. They, so those second generation, they don't cross the blood-brain barrier, correct? That's they, what I've, they, I've They're engineered to not cross the blood-brain barrier, but some people still have that issue. Okay. So oh. as an example, for me, I, I, I offer Zyrtec to my patients all the time. But for me, if I take it, I'm tired for 12 hours, really tired. But hmm. if I take Allegra, I'm totally fine. Everybody's brain chemistry is a little bit different and you have to very you know, check this out. I have so many people asking me, what's the best allergy medication? And uh, I can't answer yeah. that because everybody is different and I have to counsel you based on what are your specific symptoms, what you're allergic to, what is your overall medical history. So I have to think about all those things before giving yeah, that as a recommendation. Absolutely. But as a general broad stroke, most people don't need to take Benadryl as their go-to. And if you're taking it as a sleep aid, which a lot of people do, like Z-Quil. I was Z-Quil, just about to start talking about that. Yeah, because I work in sleep medicine. And I, t- I People tell me, like, I take it to help me sleep. I'm like, I really wouldn't recommend no. that. Like, there's other things you can do. It is not a good thing. It's like basically z is like drinking alcohol in terms of how it affects the brain. You fall asleep more quickly, yes. But is your sleep quality actually improved and do you wake up refreshed? Not usually. And one of the reasons why is because Benadryl, just like alcohol has similar properties, it increases what we call the REM latency. It's the time when you fall asleep to getting the first phase of your sleep cycle when you first enter REM, rapid eye movement sleep when you dream. And you have to go through several sleep cycles in order to get restful sleep. And not everybody has to be exactly eight hours a day. There's some, there's some variation on it, but to get to the right number of sleep cycles by taking these medications, 
you're disrupting that significantly. I will tell, like again, I work in sleep medicine. Like I see people every night with their with their sleep and their brain waves. Typically, it's like you know around ninety minutes after you fall asleep is your typical first REM cycle. Each right. REM cycle is a little bit longer than the next. Um, but I will tell you, people who are on different medications, their REM it sucks. Like I look at it and they're like up and down, and they get maybe like twenty minutes of REM here and like uh, fifteen minutes there. It's it's awful. So if you can reduce those and just try and get a solid, you know, seven to eight hours generally for most people is a good window. You're doing great. I know we all struggle, but do your best. Yeah. Some tips for general sleep hygiene and people are like, you say sleep hygiene. Like it's like, we say, yeah. Whenever I say (laughs) sleep hygiene, people are like, no, it's just for your routine. Exactly. It's your routine. We call that sleep hygiene. Yeah. Uh, Waking (laughs) up at the same time every day helps start going to bed and waking up at the same time. Right. Usually if you, if you first start off saying, I'm going to wake up at 8am every day, then your your body will naturally eventually get you to yes. fall asleep at the same time every day. Um, we are all creatures of social media and like to be on our yes. phones. We yeah. really yep. should not be on any electronic devices for, you know, ideally at least an hour before bed. I, I will tell you what's kind of helped me because I'm I've, I used to do that a lot, be on my phone. So now I find a podcast I like and I play that on the side of my bed and I just listen to it before bed. And that kind of helps me relax. That's Try better. something like that. Listening to something is great. Having something you do before bed can be very helpful the same night, whether it's taking a shower, reading a book, walking, whatever it is. It just kind of lets sets your brain into that. I'm about to go to sleep mode and it can help you fall asleep. The biggest so, thing that right. helped me was getting rid of lights in the room. Yeah, like even just the little, you know, you've got the uh, the wall taps and they have that surge protector light. I'd put a, a little bit of tape over them so they aren't projecting light all over the place. Darker cool, room. Dark room. Wait, I so can... you don't have like the, the neon lights like in your background right now in your bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> just flashing all the time. Man, I don't know why I can't sleep. I don't know what's going on. Right? Yeah. Hey, Google. <laughs> office off. Office <laughs> Ta-da. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Wow, that looks terrible. Go back to the other way. It looked way, way cooler before. <laughs> hey, Google. <laughs> office on. We there we truly go. Truly live in the future. <laughs> yeah. So it's just just to you know make sure everybody's on the same page yeah. who's listening. When you see light at nighttime, that's not good for your circadian rhythms. It really throws off your body sleep cycle. That's why we keep saying, put your phones down. I, I like yeah. the idea of listening to podcasts because oftentimes, you know, this is a very entertaining podcast, obviously. <laughs> other ones can, Don't can, listen to ours. You'll be awake for hours. I know. <laughs> this is just riveting, riveting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But other boring podcasts that I've been told do exist, listen to those and, you know, relax. <laughs> like every oh, other fitness funny. podcast, they all suck. So ours funny. is the best. All the others suck. <laughs> you can just put them on in the, at night. We don't care. Listen to ours in the gym, though. Guys, it's always fun hanging out with you. Thanks for having me on. Always. Uh, I mean, we, we had you tell everybody where to find you last time you were here, but let, just refresh Might everyone. Well. Yeah, so I'm uh, mainly on Instagram and TikTok. I've just recently started a YouTube page. It's all uh, Ruben, R-U-B-I-N underscore allergy. Well, there you go. Make sure you go follow Dr. Ruben. My, my personal favorite thing, like I already knew this before you posted about it, but my personal favorite thing that you posted was about the um, IGY regarding cats, being that I'm a big cat yeah. person. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Before. Okay. So we were we were talking about this before the podcast started, but I think we need to talk about we need to talk about this now. Yeah. Give us, yeah. Why don't you, Rob? Yeah. Give us the little thing about the eggs and the cats and the yeah. <laughs> the I, so here, here's the thing. the cat eggs eggs thing. Actually, I think kind of <laughs> propelled my my social media accounts uh, last spring. Because somebody had brought up, they, they looked at the bag of Purina Pro Plan Live Clear and were like, wait, it says that it has egg yolk in it. So, like, if I just put, like, egg onto my cat's kibble, would that just be the same thing? And I then went into the science of it, which I'm going to explain here for those who haven't heard before. So, what we know about cat allergies is that the, there are several proteins that cats make that humans could be allergic to. The one that 90, 95% of people are allergic to is a protein found in their saliva, skin cells, and urine called FEL-D1. And in the allergy nomenclature, which is actually an international classification system, so any doctor scientist will recognize this and say, oh yeah, I know what FEL-D1 is. That's that's a shorthand for the Latin word for, for domesticated cat, Felis domesticus. And the number is just the order of which we've identified it. So oh. FELD1 is the protein that causes most people all of these different symptoms. Even people who come into a house and they start wheezing, which used to be me. I used to wheeze whenever I go to my brother's house and he has two cats and it would make me really sick. So cat allergies can really make people um, really sick. But besides the point, what scientists have discovered is that chickens, when they're exposed to cats, they make a specific neutralizing antibody called IgY. Humans don't have that antibody. But, but, but chickens make that antibody in the presence of cats. And just like with humans and IgG antibodies, um, when someone is pregnant, they pass IgG antibodies to the placenta. Chickens will pass IgY antibodies to the egg yolk. And okay. so when, the, when uh, the egg yolk is then sprinkled onto the cat food, cats will then eat that and that neutralizing antibody will coat the saliva and 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 latch onto the FELD1 proteins, making them functionally inert so that when your immune system comes into contact with those proteins, it doesn't recognize it as anything. It's just like, whatever. So with this food that they make or the DIY approach where you take, you literally sprinkle the, the, the egg yolk onto to the, to the food from chickens exposed to cats... Uh, Very after important a month, that part. It has to be a chicken that has been exposed to cats. Right. If if it's just a chicken that's never been exposed to cats for at least you know a few months, it's not going to it's not going to work. Right. You're just eating eggs. Um, after about a month of daily uh, use, where these cats eat this food, the FELD1 protein is re reduced by almost fifty percent. So for many people, this new food that's by Purina. Or, or those who've tried the DIY approach, they've actually seen significant improvements in their allergy symptoms. And then you combine that with stuff like air purifiers and constant cleaning, making sure you're you know vacuuming up after your cat. This gives everybody who uh, has a cat allergy, you, you no longer have an excuse. Go get a cat. Yeah. Cats are awesome. All I'm saying, you know, there is that option, but there's also the better option of being dogs for life. Listen, I understand <laughs> it's a controversial topic. I've got four dogs. I'm sticking up for them. Man's best friend. What's it's called? It's a, cats aren't called man's best friend. Dogs are called man's best friend. Okay. First domesticated like animal ever. Wolves, dogs. I rest I, my case. I love I love animals in general, but if you if you ask me which one I like better, I am a dog lover. 
first. Oh, no. All about the dogs. You got all the different types of dogs. You got little big dogs. I, I, you got I will little say dogs, the best, though, dogs. is when cats act like dogs. Then you've got the best animal. But yes. that's what I'm saying is like what when when you love a cat, you say he acts like a dog, it's so good. Like that's, exactly. so you're saying yeah. dogs are the best. You're yeah. like you see, want see, a cat that acts you, like the best animal. A lot of people don't realize that you can train cats. To and a certain some cats to a certain extent, but they are real they can be assholes. Listen, cats can be real jerks. There, there's a lot of um tr- tips and tricks to it. And I could like I could literally do an entire episode on training We're cats. We're gonna do a whole episode on Rob <laughs> showing you how to train cats. your cat. But the big thing is that cats do not respond to um, negative reinforcement like dogs do. You have to use positive reinforcement, which is to say that shouting at a cat, no, does not work. But like, I, I train my cats to like walk on leashes with me. I take my cats camping. I take my cats canoeing. I take my cats. Um, my last one went kayaking with me. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, so. that's really cool, but I'm sick. I lo- I'm a just, I'm a dog plus, person. I love dogs. Plus, cats catch mice when you live out in rural areas. <laughs> so if you're going to live in Canada in the middle of nowhere, like Rob, get a cat. Exactly. <laughs> you won't have any diet soda options, but you'll have a cat that can catch all the mice. <laughs> and, and, and lots of your good house. snow to eat, too, right? <laughs> good old yellow snow. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Uh, well, fun. But like the great, the great best part, though, is, you know, you actually it's an actual thing. You get maple syrup. You pour it into the snow. You get, you get this maple syrupy snowball and you eat it as long as it's not yellow. That That's what my followers were telling me, like all my Canadian followers were like, yeah, it's great. And I was trying to give like the most diplomatic approach in one of my recent posts. And everybody was mad. Like nobody was happy with it. I saw you post about the snow, <laughs> about like eating snow. And everyone's like so upset in the yeah. comments. I was like, like, this is serious? weird. Seriously, I was trying to get, I was trying to be respectful of this person, not be a jerk. Because some people like that's, you know, it's part of their memories. And it's like, that's not the worst thing if you do it like responsibly and you know try it once or whatever you know like and i see it like stuff like people like will like play with their kids and stuff and any sort of playing with their kid they're like don't do that because the kid's gonna break he's fragile he's gonna i'm just like everybody we all need to relax a little bit we need to eat a little snow we need to play with our children it's it's gonna be okay obviously like you know it's within reason but come on yeah you gotta form (laughs) these memories and have some fun right yeah have them in moderation Good night, everybody. In moderation, like I've heard there's about a good podcast you should not listen to before bed. Hey, wasn't that a great time listening to the podcast? You were just, I'm assuming you knew or you were just listening to In Moderation. So if you go ahead and hit the, the five star button, is that a thing? Uh, the like that, button? That's a thing. No. Yep. The like button five on stars. YouTube. If you're on YouTube, hit the like button. Not the dislike button. That's a bad button. The bad like button. button. Bad Don't button. touch. Hit also hit all the other buttons. The share, the, the go, you can go check out all those things. Subscribe. Go check out our Patreon. Yeah. We have, we do have a Patreon. It's free to join if you want, or you could give us some money. That'd be really cool. Like a dollar or two. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Or whatever you have that's, that's super, where you'll super, find all the news for this we're super appreciative you can find all sorts of other stuff there we do giveaways i think sometimes you know sometimes all that yeah absolutely yeah. so uh peace